you have your Bibles with you this morning, I'd like to invite you to turn to Psalm 137. Psalm 137 will be our text for the morning. Pastor Mark is uh, with his family as they're celebrating graduation events this weekend and have lots of family in. So also since I was sick this week, everyone figured this was probably the safest place for me to be uh, away from... (laughs) away. Psalm 137 is perhaps one of the strangest psalms in all the Bible. You'll hear that in a moment, but I believe that God has inspired it and that he has given it to us for our instruction, for our use, and for our comfort. And so I'd like to invite you to read with me Psalm 137 in its entirety. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, Let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the root of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem. And how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we find some of your words to be strange and heavy and dark. But Father, we also find the circumstances of our life amidst a world of brokenness, of evil, suffering, death, night. We also find life in such a world to be very hard at times. And so we thank you that you care for us, that you care enough to hear our cries, and that you care enough to act justly. Father, I don't know what the needs are of all who have gathered together this morning, but Father, I pray that you would minister to our hearts individually and corporately. We need to hear from you. We need your sovereign glory to frame the circumstances of our suffering. And we need encouragement to run to you in prayer. So, Father, I pray that you would meet 10,000 needs today and that you would bring glory for your Son among us. So, Father, to that end, I pray that my words would fall fall to the ground, blow away, let them be forgotten. No one needs to hear from a man. We have come to hear from God. So speak to us through your word, we pray. Amen. Well, situated in the New Mexico desert is the largest radio receiver in the world. 
It's actually a series of hundreds of satellite-type dishes that are spread down across 38 miles of, of railroad. Pilots who fly in airplanes over this area call it the, the mushroom patch because of the strange appearance it has from high altitudes. But some scientists, creative as, as this scientist may be, gave this group a name. They called it the VLA, a very large array. Do you love the creativity? And what's so unique about this receiver is that its dishes can, can work together to, to, to gather information to create composite telescopic images. Together they function like a telescope would if it was massive, like the size of a city, like Washington, D.C. The satellites pick up radio waves from sources that are millions of light years away and then form them into images that scientists from all over the world can come and, and, and analyze. The radio waves that they're, that they're listening for are so distant and, and so far away that they are... They, they hold just a tiny amount of energy. They are, they're so faint that, that if you were to measure all of the energy that was gathered by, the, by, this, by this VLA, all of, the, all of the energy would equal the force of a single snowflake landing upon a scale. Isn't it incredible to consider the links that humans would go to to receive a message from outer space? How precious and how valuable that hard-earned data must be to those scientists who understand it and know how to study it and decipher it. But it's really a desperate sort of scene, a pitiful sort of scene if you, if you think about it. All these brilliant people straining into space through telescopes and receivers to hear a word from the darkness. How much better is it to consider for us that out of the darkness, God has spoken. And he has done so loudly and clearly through his word and through his son, Jesus Christ. Revealing to us his purposes of salvation for the world. But there's more than that, because not only has God spoken out of the darkness, but he also has a very large ear. He doesn't need special listening equipment to do it, but his ear is turned towards the prayers of his children, even when they are weak, weaker than a snowflake. For many of us, that's what we feel like our prayer lives are like. It's what they amount to, the force of a few snowflakes, perhaps. We've tried to pray, we try to do it, but we find it so hard and so frustrating or so dull and so boring that it seems like it's pointless. Perhaps we're tempted to give little time to it or little effort to it because as you have probably discovered, praying is hard. The disciples thought so. They asked Jesus for help. Teach us how to do this. This is hard. But I believe that's one of the reasons that God has given to us the Psalms. The Psalms are five bigger books made up of 150 individual prayers, songs for the people of God. Over the last few months, I've enjoyed learning about, in my, in my personal walk, learning how to use the Psalms 
as a devotional tool in, in praying before the Lord. How the Psalms can invite us into prayer to bring us before God, especially when we don't feel like it. I think this is one of the very reasons that God has given us the Psalms. To teach us how to pray. And how to pray honestly and sincerely. The book of Psalms literally means the book of praises. Praises, right, they're directed towards who? Towards God. They're prayers. It was the songbook, the songbook of the people of Israel. The hymn book that they used. It's what they gathered and used in their corporate worship. Each individual psalm is, has been inspired by God, written by a human, and then gathered by human editors and took a collection. God orchestrated and is, is sovereign over this editorial process, and he has gathered all these psalms together for us as if to say, hey, I know you're struggling to praise me like you should. I know you're struggling to pray. I know that you don't know how. I know that you need help. So here's some words that I want you to use. The Psalms are an invitation for us to pour out our joys, to pour out our sorrows, to pour out our troubles and fears and anxieties to the Lord, knowing that He hears us. There's something else I want you to notice about the Psalms, and that is that they are not just prayers, but they are poetry. They're poetry, every single one of them. They're not just flat words. They're not just communicating information to us as if Paul's letter, like Paul's letters or a narrative account. It's not simply history, but they are, they are words that are vibrant and textured and dripping with emotion and pathos. Poetry is the kind of language that humans turn to when we want to add intensity to our language. That's what poetry is. It's emotional language. Some of you guys are looking at me with blank stares and you're like, poetry, my goodness. I remember poetry in high school. It was awful. Well, you like poetry. Rocky Top, you'll always be home sweet home to me, right? How different would it be? Rocky Top, you've always been a good place to live, right? Poetry adds, and now you're awake, man. Some of you are like, hey, yeah, I like that. I can do it. Poetry adds emotional force to our words. It gives texture to the human experience. It makes words come to life and describe for us what we couldn't describe in another way. This is why we love singing so much. It's because it, it, adds word, it adds texture to words in a way that we can't do it just by saying it. The Psalms are both prayer and poetry. They are communication to God and they are emotional. They're passionate. They're meant to move us, to draw out who we really are as we go to God in prayer. The Psalms are honest. They are always honest. I remember as a high schooler trying to read the Bible for myself, and the Psalms were basically the only place that I, that I felt like I could understand things. I, I remember seeing David on one page talking about how happy he is, and then on the next page talking about how despairing he is. And that's a great way to think about the Psalms. They are full of all aspects of the human experience. If you're hurting, there are Psalms for you. 
If you're afraid, there are psalms for you. If you feel abandoned and lonely, there are psalms for you. If you're a sinner, there are psalms for you. If you have a song of joy, there are psalms for you. God has given us all that we need. The Psalms are a place where we can struggle in our prayer, where we can be honest as we go to the Lord. You know, if you think about it, we all struggle to be honest in our praying. We have learned forms of prayer, right? This is how this works. In our home, we are teaching our children how to pray, and there's forms that we are teaching them, right? One of the first things that they learned is how to end a prayer. It's important. You've got to learn how to end the thing if you start the thing, right? You say something like, dear God, and then you end by saying, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Or as one of my daughters likes to say, and the church says, amen, right? We learn these, we learn these forms. And then another form they learn is, is to thank God for stuff. Like, hey, this praying isn't that hard, right? Thank you, God, for the dresser. Thank you, God, for my socks. Thank you, God, for... I, was, I opened my eyes the other night. One of my sweet daughters was reading a book while she was praying. She was going, right? She was talking. We learn these forms, and sometimes we fall into the form, and our hearts are not dialed in. They're not engaged. One of my daughters tipped me off to this, that this is what was happening the other night. She was going through her thank yous. She's very thankful. And she said, dear God, I thank you that Daddy is sick. I was like, all right, help him to feel better. Amen, all right? Often that's what our prayers as adults are like. We're just going through the motions, just saying the words that we've fallen into, right? You hear this in public prayers all the time. But do you remember Jesus' warning about our praying? Do you remember what he said in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 6 when he said, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases. Like the Gentiles do, for you may, they may think that they'll be heard for their many words. So often our prayers are just heaped up empty phrases that you don't even know what they mean. No one knows what they mean, right? You don't even, <laughs> I won't make jokes about hedges of protection. But we often just say what we've been taught to say. We're specifically warned by Jesus to avoid insincere, empty words. Because God is not interested in our mindless utterances, no matter how good or proper they may sound. This is why, guys, when you take your wife out on a date, which I recommend, by the way, babysitters, right? If you take your wife out on a date, she wants your attention. She wants your heart. She wants the real you, not the polish, not just the put together. She wants to know you. That's how relationships are. No matter how good our words may sound, God wants our hearts. This is crucial for a good prayer life. We must learn how to pray honestly, with vulnerability, and with transparency. So often in prayer, we come before God with the impression that, that we have to put our best foot forward. I mean, we're talking to God, right? Like, we got to have our Sunday best on. we got to know the right stuff to say, right? But God sees straight past that. He sees straight past your insincere small talk and straight into our hearts. And he wants our hearts. The real you. Warts, sins, problems and all. We must learn to pray who we actually are, not who we think we're supposed to be. And the Psalms are a guide for us. In their gritty, honest 
poetic, passionate sincerity. They are a wonderful guide for us to learn how to do that. Now with that introduction to the psalm, let me give you a significant caveat for the sermon this morning. This is going to feel heavy because it is a heavy psalm. Because often in life there are circumstances that are dark and heavy. The psalm that we're considering today is considered by many to be the most scandalous psalm in all the Bible. It's a little bit embarrassing if you think about it. There are some churches, there are many churches who today sing only psalms in their services, right? The scriptures say to, to sing psalms, to encourage one another and sing psalms and praise and thanksgiving to God. And so many churches have a hymn book, and the hymn book has 150 songs or more, but they're all taken straight from the Psalms. On many of those hymn books, guess what? Verse 9 is left out. Eugene Peterson calls this a tonsil, a psalmectomy, right? Not a tonsillectomy, a psalmectomy. There's certain parts of the Psalms that we don't like. They're embarrassing because of how graphic and how vivid they are. But this is God's word. And he has worked through the editors of the Psalms under his sovereign hand to select the very Psalms, 150 of them, that he knew that his people who would face all different varieties of evil that we would need. And we need this Psalm. We need to learn how to pray when we face evil. Even when we're dealing with raw hatred. This is a psalm where the psalmist has encountered sheer, unadulterated evil. For some of you, this psalm might have resonated right away. This idea might resonate with you right away because you have faced or are facing evil. But imagine for many of us, it may seem at first hard to apply. We may not feel like we're facing much evil. And there's a sense where, strictly speaking, none of us have experienced, has experienced circumstances like the psalmist. I don't know of any of us who know what it's like to be attacked by foreign invaders, our homes plundered, taken as slaves out of our homes, out of our families, our social structures destroyed, our children killed before our eyes. but we still need this psalm. This psalm teaches us how to pray when evil comes near. We should make no mistake, there is indeed, as we sang this morning, a prince of darkness who is grim. But we don't need to tremble because of him, because we know who speaks to him. Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul reminds us, don't be one of those naive Christians who thinks life is roses and, and songs. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You and I face all sorts of problems in our lives. Big problems, little problems, and everything in between. Some devastate you and change your life forever. 
Some feel like that your world will never be the same. And then there's some that are Tuesday afternoon sort of struggles. Just annoying, frustrating, exhausting, like a buzzing bug in our ears. We face all sorts of problems. Some of them, can we admit, are our own fault. Some of them are the faults of others. Even people that we love the most. Some of them are just simply because we live in a world that has been ravaged by sin. And things go wrong. But all of it is because of sin. All of it is because of evil. So as we walk through this odd, maybe slightly embarrassing psalm, I want to encourage you to, to apply this on one of two or two, both, both different levels. All of us will at times encounter evil. Where people sin against us. We will face real injustices, real suffering that we don't deserve. This is a psalm that teaches us how to run to God and to tell Him about our experience with evil. It teaches us how to process our hate and our rage. And I think that is really the main application for us this morning. It is a cry for justice in the face of horrible wickedness. There's another application that I have in mind. For every single one of us also needs to learn from this psalm how to pray honestly. This is for all of us who struggle to take our complaints and our problems to God. Do you struggle with that some? I mean, how much easier is it to complain? Right? How much easier is it to gossip or to grumble than to pray? We'd rather perhaps fight or lash out, become bitter, or take things into our own hands, manipulate circumstances so we try to make it right or get that person back or try to bring justice ourselves. But this psalm teaches us how to sincerely take our problems to God. We don't have to pretend like it's okay and to let Him help us process our struggles there. And when we do that, we will find that we can walk away with real, sincere peace, knowing I've done my part. It's in God's hands now. But let's look at this text a little bit more specifically. The first thing I want you to notice from this passage is really what I've already said, is that God's people face evil. We face real evil. God's people have real enemies that produce real harm in our lives. The suffering in this passage is real. I know, I'm a student of the Bible like you, and I know that it is so tempting to read in a book or read in the Bible especially about someone else's suffering in their words, and it's just these like churchy, distant, far-off stuff. It's like we're just walking by a museum and like, oh, that's interesting. But this is real. The emotional agony in this psalm is real. Every line is alive with pain. The pain grows in intensity until it climaxes at the end. But there in the opening scene, it's vivid and easy enough to understand. Clearly, this psalm is written at a period of history when God's people were taken into captivity. The Babylonian exile, when God's people were taken away. It's a time where, because of sin, 
foreign armies came and, and sacked Jerusalem. They plundered and they murdered. They, they destroyed the temple and they carried away the social elites into Babylon. Families were separated. People were murdered. Lives and dreams ruined. It's a scene where one such Israelite man is mocked by his tormentors, by his captors, and they ask him, hey, sing us one of those songs about Zion, you know, that city that we destroyed. Sing us one of those songs. You can almost hear the captor laughing, but the writer doesn't feel like singing. He feels like weeping. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever had the music knocked out of you? Have you ever lost something so precious or someone that is so dear to you? Have you ever had anything taken from you? Have you ever been mistreated? Have you ever been violated? The psalmist has. His life and his heart had gone flat. Sing? You want me to sing? Oh, no, I'm not going to sing. Have you ever felt like that before? Church can be a hard place to come if you're suffering. Some of you know that right now. You come into services with, you're supposed to be happy and you dress nice, you, you know, put on a smile, you're supposed to talk to people you don't really know super well, right? You're supposed to act like it's all together. You've got burdens that no one knows about. You've got agonies that no one knows about. And then we start singing, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it, right? And you're thinking, how can I rejoice? You don't know the suffering and the darkness that I face. The psalmist refuses to sing. He's chucked his instrument up into a tree. He says, I'd rather my hands be cut off. I'd rather my tongue be stuck to the top of my mouth. I'm not going to play and I'm not going to sing. His loss is so great. His grief is so profound. No, he's not going to sing. But notice what he does. He prays. If we're going to pray honest prayers out of the actual circumstances of our lives, if, if, if we think that God really wants us to pray out of who we really are and what we're really experiencing, then we're going to have to learn how to pray out of evil and suffering because we all face evil and suffering. If God wants us to pray out of the way things are, then from time to time, we're going to look at the way things are, and the way things are stinks. So what do you do? You get on Instagram and you see all this happy Christian stuff. What do you do? You crowd to God where you are. You may look up and see things are pretty bad. I'm facing evil. I have enemies. I'm hurting. I am suffering. On days like that, we may not need to pray Psalm 136. We may need to pray Psalm 137. The psalmist has enemies, and he's going to pray about them. In fact, if you read the psalms, if you survey the psalms, you will find that the guys, the folks who wrote the psalms, had lots of enemies, and they talk about them all the time. They prayed about them, actually, all the time. And they didn't do it with the polite, sunny school kind of, you know, that's nice prayer. They, they prayed, they poured out their hearts for God. They pleaded for justice. 
Psalm chapter 10, verse 15. Break, O God, break the arm of the wicked. Psalm chapter 58, verse 6. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Psalm 83, 15. Pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. You ever felt like praying down a hurricane on someone? The psalmist did. What do we do with this stuff? Are you telling me, preacher guy, that I can pray down hurricanes on the people I don't like? How how do we sort this out? The psalmists were angry people. They had enemies. But we see how they dealt with them. They spent a lot of time praying about them. Verses 7, 8, and 9, there at the end of the psalm, we see the psalmist going to the divine judge and asking for him to enact justice. Remember, O Lord, remember what they did to Jerusalem. In other words, remember and do something about it. Remember what they said. Let them be doomed. The temperature of the psalm keeps rising, the intensity building until finally the final cry of honest agony there in verse 8. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Verse 9 is shocking to us. Verse 8 gives us some sort of context out of how such a horrific thing could be prayed. He's praying for retribution. He's saying, oh God, be just. Apparently this is what the Babylonians had done, or the Edomites had done to them. In fact, there's ample historical evidence. I know that there are children here, so I will not go into detail. But this was not unheard of. This was not uncommon. When a conquering nation would sack a city, they would, they would, they would do this to children. What in the world do you do with that sort of evil? Just pretend it's not there? Verse 9 is raw hatred prayed to God. I'd like for you to notice that it is prayed. It's not suppressed, but it's prayed. Friends, this is an important lesson for us. Hate, rage, anger, suffering, agony must all be prayed, not suppressed. You can't hide it from God. You can't suppress it effectively, right? We need, we need to take it to God. We may not be in this exact situation. Those words might be too strong for us right now, but there may come a time when they are right. All of us feel it from time to time. People wrong us. They hurt us. They slander us. Or we perceive that they've wronged us. What do we do? We become angry. We become enraged. Dare I even say hateful. And we're embarrassed by this. I mean, in a spiritual context, we'd be, we're embarrassed by our hate, so we suppress it. We we, we express it in other sinful ways. We yell, we criticize, we scream, we gossip, we stew, we hit. We plot revenge or manipulation. But you see, God knows that we face evil. And he knows that we have enemies. And he equips us on what to do with it. Anger, listen to me friends, anger is the right response to evil. Anger is the right response to the wickedness and evil that takes place in your life. Think about what anger is. Anger is we want someone to see and to acknowledge the injustice. 
We want someone to say, hey, you can't talk to me like that. That's not right. You can't take that from me. You can't look at me like that. You can't treat me like this. That's not right. Righteous anger hates evil. It's calling out for God to see that this is violating God's good creation. That that there is evil that victimizes and brutalizes the weak and the vulnerable and the unborn. And we want God to see we should hate evil. We should hate evil the way God hates evil. If you don't hate evil, you don't care. You cannot love and not hate evil. It's indifference. But as sinners, we have to recognize that our hatred is so dangerous. And our anger is so dangerous. And therefore, it must be prayed. Our hatred, our anger should send us to God. Pleading for him to take action. Pleading for him to, take, to, to bring justice. We go to God and we give it to God saying, if you don't take this, I'm going to get in trouble. I'm going to do something wrong. It's a kind of furious praying. It doesn't legitimize our hate. It uses hate to draw us to God who is sovereign, who is a sovereign judge over all creation and who will make all things right. You see, our hatred, even our hatred of evil, it, it, it's not the last word of prayer. It is rather the first step. It's running to our Father in a time of need. It's going for help. And this is where so many of us get it wrong. We perceive an injustice, right or wrong, and often that injustice has nothing to do with God and His glory. It's only concerned with us and our glory. We perceive an injustice, And we don't run to God, but we take matters into our own hands. We open our mouths and we spew forth pain and judgment. Yet God has made it clear. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. God is judge, not us. As I said it before, we need to get off his throne. We need to stop playing God and let him be God. That's why the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 12... Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So how how do we put all this together? Let me suggest to you this morning a few steps for praying your hate, or praying your anger, or praying your hurt. The first thing to do would be to acknowledge it and to take it to the Lord. Pretending that you're not angry doesn't make you not angry. Have you noticed that? Duh, right? It doesn't, that doesn't work. The first step is to take it into the presence of the Lord. It's only then can we learn his ways. It's only then can we see that he has his own ways of dealing with evil. And he has promised that he will deal with every single evil. It always feels like in the moment that God isn't going to do anything about it. That if no one says anything, then, th- th- then that word will go unpack, un- un- unfixed. And so we're like, i got to fix that. i gotta say, I got to let her know what she did. i got to make sure he knows you don't ever treat me like that again. Does not the God of earth see? This very act of prayer, of going to the Lord, humbles us. It calls us to come to God, and we're saying, I need 
help. Otherwise, you wouldn't pray, right? And that's why often we don't pray because we don't think we need help. I need help. Prayer puts us in a posture to be taught, to be corrected. I'm not strong enough. I'm not powerful enough. I'm not wise enough. I don't know what to do. Prayer humbles us. You don't have to be on your best to go to God. And whenever and whatever you do, you don't have to put on a show. Be honest. God doesn't want your show. God hates false religion. He wants you and a heart that is bent towards him. I've heard it said once, it's easy to be honest with God about our hallelujahs. But it's hard to be honest with God about our hurts. The Psalms teach us that prayer and that life in a fallen world is not rainbows and cupcakes. So often in the church, we act like life is like that. But it's not. Life is hard, so pray hard things. Pray hard prayers. Deal with your problems before the Lord. A second thing to do is once you've taken your, your problem, your anger to the Lord, let Him examine it. Let Him examine your anger and your hurt. I can't go into this much. I've done this in other times and other places. But part of our sinful nature is that we get angry over the wrong things. Righteous anger will get angry about what angers God. Righteous anger is concerned with God not getting enough glory. And that is often, let's just be honest, that is not why we get angry. We get angry because I don't get enough glory. So everybody get ready for my wrath. Anger is dangerous. Which is why we need to lay it before the Lord and let him examine it. We need to go to him and allow him to legitimize or delegitimize our anger. If you're angry for the right reasons, for righteous reasons, trust me, you will find a God who is just as angry, in fact, more angry than you. You don't hate sin more than God. You don't have eyes to see it clearly. But usually what we'll find is that our anger is tarnished. It's completely bunk or it's mixed at best with our own selfishness. We're just frustrated that we're not getting our own way. We're frustrated that our pride is being ruined. Our comfort is being tampered with. That's why we need the Lord to purify it. A third thing to do is to cry out for justice. Call on God to intervene. The only way we can understand the psalmist's gruesome request in verse 9 is to recognize that he is calling for justice based on the principle of retribution. An Old Testament principle that God established for governments. And he's calling for God to be just. Now what we've already said, we are never called to take matters into our own hands. But we are always called to leave justice to the Lord. He will repay. And you, you'll find when you do this, when you really leave it to him, you will be at peace. The peace of God will guard your hearts. The peace that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your mind. This is what the psalmist does. He leaves the matter with God. You see, we trust God by waiting on God. We honor God. We give him the ultimate expression of confidence when we pour out our complaints and even our hatreds to the Lord because we know he will take us seriously. And so our hearts are moving from hatred to pleading for justice, but there's another step, and that's mercy. 
mercy. Perhaps you were wondering, what about Jesus' words? Love your enemies and pray for them that persecute you. That sounds really different than what the psalms, psalmists are doing. How does that square? How does that fit? We, are, we can love our enemies and also love justice. But we need to recognize as people of the cross that God has changed it all with the gospel. The first thing to notice is that Jesus acknowledges that you have enemies. Love your enemies. He's acknowledging you have enemies. And you need to know that at times you have enemies. So often in counseling, the hardest thing to do is before I can convince people they need to love their enemies, I have to convince them they have enemies. People that are hurting them. That are saying unkind things. That are treating them unfairly. They're acting like enemies. God is calling us to love them. But you see, the primary thing we have to understand is that we cannot forget this new situation that has been created for us by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot forget the cross. The gospel radically redirects our pleas for justice. Because on the cross, we see the same God of the Old Testament, we see his radical commitment to justice. We see his commitment to justice. Sin is punished on the cross. Jesus got exactly what sinners deserve. And we also see his radical commitment to love. Even loving his enemies. And that's you and me. God has enemies. And I was once one of them. And everything changed because of Jesus. You see, on the cross, we see God's commitment to, sin, to, to punishing sin and to loving sinners. And when, sinners, when other sinners sin against us in radical ways, we are called to consider Jesus, who takes sin so seriously, who takes justice so seriously that he died for it. He didn't sweep it under the rug, but he also loves sacrificially, so that he died for it. God deals with sin. No sin will sneak past his throne. He just doesn't deal with it the way you and I expect. Every time that we take our complaints before the Lord, every time we take our pain and our hatred, and every time we bring our enemies to the Lord, we must remember Jesus. Is that not a time to say, Am I not also a radical sinner? Or what about this? Do I hate my sin the way I hate his sin? Do I not know what it's like to be a sinner with the weight of sin on my back bearing down upon me? If it were not for Jesus, I would face total justice and perfect retribution in hell for the sins that I have committed. But praise God for Jesus Christ who loves his enemies. There will be a day where he will break the teeth of his enemies. But now he calls, sinners, come to me. And I will give you life. The gospel does not make light of evil. It does not make light of the evil that you face. And it does not make light of the evil that you commit. Which is why we need to run to Jesus. Because there on the cross we see that Jesus overcomes evil. And so we are called to go out in love and to do the same thing. 
We can and we should take our honest complaints and our hatred and our pains to the Lord in prayer. But it must not just end there. Because as we process our hatred of evil before a God who loves us, we will end in awe and amazement at a God who is holy. And then we will end in awe and amazement that God has not destroyed us. Sinners, enemies to his glory. So there we celebrate the cross. Where God made a way for salvation for his enemies. Even me and even you. I'd like to invite you to close your eyes and bow your head in a time of invitation. All of God's word demands a response. And so we need to consider how to respond to the Lord. How is he calling you to respond? Perhaps you're here today and you're facing great evil. And you've responded by growing bitter. Bitter at the Lord and bitter at people. Pour your heart out to the Lord and find him to be a refuge. Entrust your closest burdens to him. Perhaps you're here today and you are, you've been hurt and you need your heart to be bound up. Run to the Lord and expect him to give you the care you need. Perhaps you're here today and you've spent your life making much of everyone else's sin while minimizing your own sin. And you need to see that God will bring judgment on your sin unless you run to Jesus by faith. However you need to respond, let me invite you that as we stand now and sing, sing to the Lord and pour your heart out before him. Tony, let's sing together. Will you stand?